Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Take two. It's Ken Dasha's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Thanks for joining us again on the Beatles Revolution. Ken Dash, I were coming off the live Breakfast of the Beatles show last week. Got so many nice letters. You know, the old, ah, keep them cards and letters coming in. So many nice responses. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoy the, the stories and the live music. And producer Andrew is here. Was that the first one you attended? Is that- uh, no, that was at least the second, probably the third that I went to. Thank, thanks for waking up early and seeing it. But it was absolutely a first for me, bucket list thing of... I've never played. I played tambourine. Like when we did. Bad, I've seen you play tambourine. Yeah, bad boy or something. I play tambourine. I, mean, I can. I'll keep the beat. And, you know, I'm not playing like Neil Peart. But Billy Amendola, the editor from Modern Drummer, my good friend. I hate your guts. I hate your guts. I hate your guts. Yeah, he was the one because he'll just browbeat you going. I've seen you play drums. No correction. He's from Brooklyn. I've seen you play drums. I've seen and, you play drums. And to write for Modern Drummer, you have to be a good drummer. Right. It's in the uh, <laughs> in the code in the agreement. Yeah. You got to play drums on a song. You got to play drums on a song. And again, I'm I'm just fine for my knock around band that never plays out. And we play rock songs. We have a few beers and have some laughs. You call a Stone song, I've got it. You want to play, you want to play Roadhouse Blues, I've got it. You want to play Aerosmith, you, you know, I you know, I've got I've got those. You want to play Asia? We we've been playing Rainbow in this set oh, since nice. you've been gone. Love playing that. The thing about the Beatles. It's because it's breakfast with the Beatles, and I am allegedly the Beatles guy. It's got to be perfect. It can't be good, uh, and it's got to be spot on. Uh, so I picked something fairly straightforward, lovely Rita, meter maid. And, of course, Mark Rivera can sing anything and play anything. The guys like John Colbert on keyboards, who played with John Lennon, Vince Reed, who's played with everybody on bass, these guys can do anything. So you could call any song and literally off the top of their heads with that rehearsal, it'll be pretty good. In one rehearsal, it's not perfect. And when I showed up Sunday morning, Mark Rivera looked at me and said, you got this? And you have to, you can't say I think so, I'm pretty sure. It was clearly a yes or no question. Yeah, Mark Rivera's not used to hearing, uh... <laughs> <laughs> nobody on Nobody on stage with Billy Joel says, uh... I th- think uh, by the time he, no right there's no that and so I just gotta listen to it one more time he doesn't want to hear that no. No. so i just said you know big put on my big boy pants and go yes and he said all right then and smiled so there's this moment the song starts and he turned to me i'll put the video up on the blog he turned to me and said you ready with a big smile on my face now he's my buddy but it's mark rivera you know the man who created sledgehammer and he said, you ready? And you have to say ready. So I counted off with the drums. And again, it's not like the fills are complicated, but you know exactly what Ringo's fills sound like. And if it's faster or slower or you added one extra beat, 
most Beatle fans would know it because you've memorized these songs backwards and forwards. So if I may say proudly, I think I honored Richie pretty well. Let me just play for you the little snippet of me playing the the break in Lovely Rita before it goes into the piano solo. Okay, Andrew, here it is. When are you free to take some tea with me? Okay, now that's not Moby Dick from John Bonzo Bonham. That's not YYZ from Rush. But if it's not da doom ba boom ba ba everybody goes, all right, you have no idea what you're doing. And the best compliment I got uh, Sunday night, I went back to the cutting room. My friend Harriet Stubbs, great classical pianist, played there. I invited Vince Reed, the bass player, and his wife Aaron. And Vince said to me, let me tell you, man, that was spot on. That was Ringo. That was Ringo playing. And something about when guys on that level, I mean, you know, Vince was modern English. He's played. It doesn't it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're in Asia or you've been in great bands. He Vince has uh, a tribute band. I mean, just, you know, a cover band playing rock standards in Florida. He makes his money here as a sound man for movies. And he loves running down to Florida because he loves standing there with a bass in his hand. You know the feeling. That's the thing you love the most. So they play clubs and restaurants and, and gigs and stuff, playing tribute. And he said to me, we were walking over to the cutting room. He said, can I tell you? He said, we play a lot of Beatles in my band. And, you know, you're always looking for a drummer or trying to get, you know, the second guitarist. He said, whenever someone recommends a drummer and I send them the set list and I say, we play a lot of Beatles. And they always say, oh, simple shit, man. I can handle it. Every time they fuck it up. Because as soon as you assume that the Beatles are simple, I know you've never really listened to it or pulled it apart. He said, if you've, if you've never pulled it apart, it sounds simple until you pull it apart. And if you're going to play it correctly, it's not simple. And, you know, that it meant the world to me, that even that little drum kit. Like, like Mark Rivera said to me, remember, Ringo leads with his left hand. He plays a righty drum kit, but he leads with his left hand. Instead of moving your right hand over, you start with your left hand. Exact opposite of what I would always do. There was just magic in these four guys. Andrew and I were talking about how bands start because we're coming up on the 60th anniversary, July 6, 1957, the church fete at St. Peter's Church in Wilton in Liverpool. The church picnic, you know, a holiday picnic for the summer. 16-year-old John Lennon and his band, The Quarrymen, are playing. Here's what John Lennon said about the Beatles. We were four guys that uh, I met Paul and said, do you want to join my band, you know? And then George joined. And then Ringo joined. We were just a band who made it very, very big, that's all. Yeah, and Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were just two nerds who happened to come up with a computer system. No, the Rolling Stones were a band that made it very, very big. You guys changed the world. But it starts with the Quarrymen, 16-year-old John Lennon on vocals, Eric Griffiths on guitar, Colin Hanton on drums, Rod Davies on banjo, Pete Shotton playing the washboard, and Len Gary, the T-chest bass. Did you ever hear of that term, Andrew, the T-chest bass? Um, is that like a, uh, like a bucket with a string kind of situation? It's, it's basically a big bucket. It's a box. Basically, okay. you've taken a big box and put the string on it. Okay. And put three strings on it with a broom handle. Mm. And... Everybody said, oh, that's, you know, again, you couldn't afford any instruments to have a guitar. Sure. 
to have any sort of a drum kit that was an actual drum kit was amazing. So here are the quarry men. Uh, they're on the back of a lorry, out of a you know a truck in England, and they come in through the cake stalls and the craft fairs, and the, they're trying to play while the truck is moving, and they keep falling over. <laughs> and John finally says, "Stop the truck!" And you know they're playing "Come and Go with Me" by the Dell Vikings. Come, 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 and. John A. doesn't know the words because he's just heard it, so he's making it up. And the other part of 16-year-old John Lennon is he was drunk. <laughs> he was a bad boy. John, they used to say, when, when the quarrymen were up here, Pete Shotton said to me, so, you know, did your mom want you to be in a band? She said, well, all of our, all of our moms thought, well, they could get into worse trouble than being in a band. So it's okay to be in a band because there were you could be stealing cars or something. But all of our moms, every single one said, but you stay away from that Lennon boy. That Lennon boy, he's trouble. He mm. is. He's trouble, that one. And he was the he was the guy who, you know, had his hair in a slick back pompadour. He's the one who looked cool even at 16. Mm. And producer and Aaron Drew and I were talking about these inauspicious beginnings to so many of these great rock and roll bands. Um, here's, you know, the name that gets lost a lot to the casual Beatle fan is Ivan Vaughn. He sometimes played T-Chess bass with the Quarrymen when, you know, the guys couldn't make it. When uh, Was it Len who, who played it? Uh, yeah, when Len Gary couldn't make it. He was the tall one. So Ivan Vaughn would play. And he just brought his friend, 15-year-old Paul McCartney, from Liverpool Institute where they went to school to see the Quarrymen. And he thought, you know what? He should meet. He should meet John Lennon. Maybe he wants another guitarist or something. He'll just meet a guitarist. And they go backstage at the church. And there's a clip from the movie Nowhere Boy that I have to put up on the blog because I thought they did it well. 15-year-old, cocky as hell. He was, he was 15 years old. He was still Paul McCartney. And he walks back and he said, so this is my friend Paul. He likes music too. He goes, do you write music? Yeah, you write songs. Yeah. He said, <laughs> and Paul, 15 years old. And you know the difference between a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, 17-year-old. And Paul says to John Lennon, the leader of Man Who Already Has a Band, your guitar's out of tune. Dead silence. And John said, well, why don't you tune it then? And he hands Paul his guitar, and Paul tunes the guitar. And then plays with John's guitar, 20 Flight Rock and Bebop Aluba. John says, hmm, good. <laughs> and they said it was a little bit you know, standoffish because we're both kind of cocky. And uh, about a week later, uh, Ivan said, oh, did you talk to John? Like, he wants you to join the band. So they get together. He goes, yeah, yeah you want to be in a band, Paul? And Paul had scout camp because it's the summer, and he had like sure. two weeks of scouts. And I got scouts for two weeks and then come back. <laughs> here's, here's Paul McCartney in a nutshell, uh, a, a friend of mine, a, a, a painter, uh, Eric, Eric Last, who did a painting of the moment of them, you know, meeting together, of Paul standing there, 15 years old, and there's John and Eric Griffiths and Colin and Rod and Pete Shotton and Len Gary. And a friend uh, showed that, who, who works with Eric, showed the painting to Paul McCartney. She went to one of the sound checks and bought it, brought it to him just to show it to him. And he said, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, there's Colin. Yeah, there's Rod. That's Pete. That's Len. And he's looking at the picture. And Paul now, like this year, said, let's see, I, I got rid of Len first, then I got rid of Rod, 
and then I brought in George, and then we got rid of Pete, and then we got, hmm. and he remembered the order that he disassembled the Quarrymen for right. John Lennon and formed the band they were supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Because even at 15, no, don't do that, do this. No, this guy's out. Nope, you're out. This guy's in. This is out. That guitar's out of tune. Yep, nope. <laughs> you know, it, people say Paul's a bossy boots. When you hear something so clearly, when your vision of it is so clear, and you are the 1% of the 1% of the 1% who know exactly where you want to go. Not that you've got the technical proficiency, but I'm going to write songs with you. We're going to write great. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Great songs. We're going to be the greatest band in the world. And John believes you. There's something, a look in your eye that says, I believe you. Okay, let's do this. Yeah, I love the idea of a uh, 16 or a, a, teenager, a teenage John Lennon sort of as the lead badass around whom all the music at the church revolves. And then some young punk, Paul McCartney, who's way younger and uh, with the puppy dog face is right. just like, no, I, I know how to do this. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to right. take ass, it from here. Yeah. The other guy looks like a little kid, and he's actually the smart-ass right. hard-ass. Like. Right. The older kid needs his girlfriend to break up the band in a few years. <laughs> But, it, you know, it's it's true. Paul told the story. He said, you know, when you're a kid and you're meeting other kids, you go play. You meet another 13, 14-year-old. And people would say, Paul said, people would say to me, hey, what do you like to do? And he'd say, I'd like to write songs. And there'd be dead silence. And the other kids would go, oh, did you see the football match last night? Yeah, okay, nobody wants to talk about that. He goes, I never met anybody who wanted to talk about music wanted to talk about songs. They wanted to talk about football or we stole a dirty magazine or did hmm. we steal a cigarette. And he said, "Here's no matter what anybody else writes, when I met John Lennon, and he said, you, you know, do you, like, you write songs? I said, yes. Do you write songs? He said, yes. He said, he's the first kid I ever met in Liverpool who said yes to that. Hmm. And when I said, we should write some songs, he said, yeah, let's write some songs. And, you know, think about it. You had to, he had to, be, your be-, you had to be each other's best friends because you're the only people you ever met in town that ever said at 15, 16 years old, let's write songs. Yeah. To everybody else, it was just a goof. You know, it's a, it's a way to kill some time and maybe we'll get a girlfriend or something. And as we learned from uh, Brett Burns, writing songs wasn't even something professionals were necessarily doing. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You, it was unheard of. You were just trying to learn the songs you heard on the radio. Write songs? You know how cheeky that is for a teenager in, in 1957 to say, let's write our own? I mean, that, that, it started back then, not when they were 20. It started at 15, we're writing our own songs. And one of the coolest things to me about seeing John's house where he lived with Aunt Mimi, in his room, Andrew, you have to go. Go to, go to Liverpool and check out uh, John's house. Um, there's a bay window with a, with a seat where you'd sit in the bay window. And it's perfect for two people to sit and work on songs if one's lefty and one's righty. Because ah. they could face each other, and they weren't clanging the necks mm-hmm. of the guitar. 
And he always talked about how that made it just made it easier rather than sitting side by side or facing each other. He didn't really have a chair in his room. It was just the bed and the dresser in a small room. So I'd either have, you know, you'd have to lean on the dresser or both sit side by side on the bed. We sat on that. One neck was going to the left, one was going to the right. We could look right at each other, and that's how we learned how to play with each other and play inside through this chord, that chord. And, you know, it seems like nothing, but it actually it says a lot about how when you're a teenager, you kind of learn how to write with somebody because you're literally six inches away from them, and you can play the guitar with your fingers a few inches apart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, just having a, a space where you feel like you can be creative or you feel comfortable um i've i've definitely hurt my neck and my shoulders and my back <laughs> just in like a chair with arms you know sitting right you don't really get a lot done when you're in pain yeah when you're, you're trying to play the bass or you're yeah. trying to play any and especially that young trying to do something ambitious like write songs i think that definitely has an effect uh, you know so many bands that start in schools we've been looking at that through the classic rock world um you too you know that have been are playing in town in our neck of the woods these days. So Larry Mullen, the drummer, 14 years old, puts a note on the bulletin board at Mount Temple Comprehensive School in Dublin. Like to start a band. Anybody interested, come to my house. And six people show up. And it's Bono, it, it, you know, it's Paul Euston, Dave Evans, and Larry Mullen came along with his friend. I mean, the band just showed up. Nice. <laughs> Usually yeah. you have to go through... 17 different people to find the iteration that's successful. Right. That night at 14, the whole all of you two just showed up in yeah. his house, the other 14, 15-year-olds. And, and the amazing thing is, is they've been a band ever since. It, that just almost never happens. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. We never, you never hear about fights or anything in you two. No, they keep everything in-house. Right, you know, but they do. Happened. But the, so, you know, I got to, not about name-dropping, you know, I got to talk, The Edge is very open about this stuff. I said, you guys, like, never go at it. You never have those drop dead. I'm doing a solo album. He goes, he goes, well, we do. We just, you know, don't make a big fuss about it. And I said, did you ever, like, like push each other? He goes, oh, I clocked Bono. I absolutely almost, like, de I decked him on stage. Like, wow. when? So as, you know, you're traveling around, you're playing around Ireland, and they had a shit drum kit. You know, you're like everybody. The equipment's got awful. You don't have the money for good equipment. Mm -hmm. And Larry had this drum kit that, as long as you set it up and didn't breathe on it or move it, it was fine. But just playing it, the thing would fall apart because <laughs> all the screws were stripped and the struts were stripped. So the most important tool, he always said when we were starting out, it wasn't my drumsticks. It was the pliers that I had in my back pocket, or as they call them, spanners. Mm -hmm. You know, pliers are spanners in, in, or in Europe. He said the spanners that would keep the drum kit going. And one time, the entire, like, hi-hat collapsed on it, and I had to, like, tighten everything. And that's happened to me even playing just screwing around. Um, so I yell, hey, hey, talk for a bit. I got to fix this. And Bono doesn't hear me. And so I get off the stool, and I'm, I'm sort of rebuilding it from the beginning up because I know how to catch the thread. If I get it just right, it'll stick for a half hour. And we, we all know that. There's a yeah. script screw and a script hole, but if you can just tighten it enough, it won't drop and you put a piece of cardboard in there. So you have to tighten it all the way. And he's making it up, a makeshift hi-hat, and Bono doesn't hear him. And he just starts introducing the next song. And and 
the edge says is saying, wait, Larry's not ready. Wait, Larry's not ready. And Bono just keeps going on and on and says, All right, here we go. One, two. And turns around and Larry goes, what the hell's wrong with you? And Dave Evans, the edge, Dave just went, you don't fucking listen. Boom. And cracked him. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at Dave Evans, the edge, and he's got this little smile on his face. He, he looked like a 15-year-old kid who had just punched out his friend for being an ass. And the guy he punched would go on to cure AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet, no. but maybe. I mean, you, you go he's certainly trying. You drive the van. You get lost. You have to learn how to fix the van. You, le- you go through all that. And if you survive that, and no band of that level, I think, has survived it any better than those four guys. For some reason, they can make fun of each other. They can laugh at each other. Mm-hmm. And it's so tight. There's never a thought. We could curse each other. We could do whatever. But there's never even a thought of Amada here. And it takes a... You really have to love each other because they've gone through all the same hell that your band, 100,000, everybody else does, and not getting paid, and this and that. And, you know, the, the record deals and the things. And, and the funny thing is everybody says, well, once you're making the big money. No, that's when it gets worse. When the big money comes, that's when everybody's up your butt going, you know, if you left these guys, you're making a million a show now. You leave. You're the star of this band. I could get you ten million a night. I'll, I'll sign a blank check right now. Mm-hmm. It, it's so much easier to be lured away when there's money involved. And for these guys to keep together, I'm in awe of that. They can still do it. Yeah, you think about the bands that have stuck together for decades. It's U2, ZZ Top, Rush, with some hiatuses yeah. that didn't really have anything to do with band relations. Aerosmith, maybe? Yeah. Well, they, they've had some tough times. Yeah. But, I mean, Blue Oyster Cult, Foghat, you know, bands that have lost people along the way and still mm-hmm. keep going. Skinner, who's lost almost everybody and still keeps going. Yeah. Why? Because you keep going. That's what you do. That's what we do. You lose somebody, next man up. Let's go. Right. Another group that stayed together until the lead singer passed and then have now found other lead singers to keep going is another band touring this summer is Queen. Yeah. I, it seems like the these British bands especially fall into two categories. You were either you knew each other in high school or early in college or you met after you were pros. Like yeah. Led Zeppelin, those guys were all making a living, so to speak, in bands when they got together. But uh, Queen, uh, Brian May was at Imperial College in London, and he and his friend Tim Staffel put out an ad. And I love the description in the ad. It was for a Mitch Mitchell Ginger Baker type drummer. Wow, so they wanted a crazy Jimi Hendrix cream kind of sound. They were thinking power trio. Right. That's that's what I get from it. They were thinking power trio. They got Roger Taylor, who is nothing like any of no. Who's amazing, of but yeah, has great. nothing to do with that Amazing sound. singer, especially yeah. for a, uh, from behind the kit. So they formed a band called Smile. Freddie Mercury becomes a fan after seeing them at a gig. So... I think the main reason we're talking about this is because of the band Tim Staffel leaves Queen for. Yes. If anyone didn't know this, they're going to love it just as much as you and I do. So Tim Staffel leaves Smile to join Humpy Bong. What could go wrong with that name? I I think they're still on the road. <laughs> so Smile uh, changes its name to Queen. 
uh, Freddie joins, and then they get John Deacon on bass. And it seemed to work out fairly well for them. Seemed those to boys. go all right, yeah. You know, another school band, Genesis. You know, they were... We, we that was the it, next one on my list, actually. Really? Yeah. You know, like, I, I went to poly prep. I went to private school. In England, it's reversed. Private school is called public school. Uh, don't ask me why. Mm. I have no idea. A pub, a pub boy is like a private school boy here. And they were a charter house. So they were all schoolmates together, right? Tony Banks, Rutherford, Peter Gabriel, Anthony Phillips, the guitarist. And they're writing songs, and they were the precocious kids, and they're reading English lit, and... You know, it's a it's a band that really probably can't go anywhere because it's too smart for its own good. And Anthony Phillips, they start doing gigs. And, you know, here's the difference between you could be in a band and then you have to play out. And Anthony Phillips develops terrible stage fright as a teenager. And just, he said, you know, touring, it's taking us away from writing. And everybody else says, well, we have to do both. We have to write and tour. We're a band. We're going to play out. And it's it's just not... He's just not cut out for playing in front of an audience. I'll sit in the room, uh, in our dorm room, or I'll sit at your house and play, but I can't stand up in front of an audience. And he has to bow out. He's getting bronchitis. He's getting sick from it. Jeez. Physically sick. Okay, we find Steve Hackett. We got a guitarist. Let's keep going. Tony Banks says, never really liked the drummer. (laughs) Okay, let's hold open auditions for drummers. And you know the story about Phil Collins joining the band? With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't. This is one of the greatest cheats I ever heard about auditioning for a band. They audition it at Peter Gabriel's house. And like I said, private school kids. These guys had some money. You know, these aren't the stones like living on the floor and stealing right. food. They, they, they did fine. They parents are sending them to private schools. It's a nice house. They've got a swimming pool. And he's holding open auditions for a drummer and explaining their influences and progressive music and very lyrical and different time signatures. And Phil Collins is a young actor and a musician. You know, as a kid, he's in Hard Day's Night. He's sitting in the balcony. He's doing anything he can. He just wants to be in showbiz. These guys are eclectic and trying to rewrite Chaucer. And Phil's, you know, like Davy Jones of the Monkees. He's already acting. I'm playing music. I want to be in a band. I want to be in a drummer. But I don't know if I can do this. So he gets there, and they say, okay, you know, it'll be a while. We're backed up. They're auditioning all these drummers. And Phil says, oh, that's fine. I'm not in a rush. May I swim in the pool? They said, yeah, do you have a bathing suit? And Peter Gabriel gives him a bathing suit. So Phil says, yeah, I'm just going to swim in the pool. Very generous by Peter Gabriel. Very nice. But, you know, the guy's going to wait. You're letting somebody you don't know use your bathing suit? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) I'll be nice to the pool boy and let him use the pool. But as Phil said, I didn't give a shit about the pool. I just hung out in the pool and listened to everybody else audition. And I just sort of hid in the pool for about an hour and listened to every piece they played. And I was practicing air drums in the pool of how I would play it. And when everybody fucked up, I would say, okay, right, I know what I would do there. And the fills and the changes, and I'd memorize the changes because they were always playing the same, like, three, four songs. So I really learned those three, four songs over the hour that they were auditioning everybody. And when they finally said, are you ready? They went, yeah, okay, I'll give it a crack. And I nailed it. 
and I, I really wasn't good enough to play all that stuff, but give me an hour, and I could practice the three, mm-hmm. four songs well enough that I was the best guy that came through that day. So then I could fake it for the next few weeks until I got up to speed and then said, hey, by the way, I'm you know I'm making this up as I go, but I'll get up to speed if you give me, I just need a little more time. And by then, we were doing good. We liked each other. We got along. So it was fine. Yeah. That's a great way to scam awesome. your way into a band, isn't it? Yeah, just sneak in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that reminds me, uh, what I wanted to mention about Queen, um, of course, Brian May was studying science or astro i don't know if it was necessarily astrophysics at the time roger taylor was studying dentistry so these were amazing smart smart kids and it totally came across in the records that they would put out i mean when you you know suddenly the fountain of the salmasis and you're you're getting some blake poetry in here there's a lot a lot of heavy stuff that comes through selling england by the pound and by the way, I, I'll never begrudge a band becoming successful and making money. And, you know, that's that's absolutely fine. But I was a Genesis fan about the early, you know, crazy British prog rock stuff because, you know, that's me. That That's what I love about prog rock. And I'm ELP in the first album with the three fates <laughs> and learn and then go into the library to find out what the three fates are uh, from classical Greek mythology and learning. And yeah, I'm a total nerd about that stuff, but I enjoyed it. And again, Genesis gets to Duke and Abacab, and we're doing just fine, and congratulations to that. But I understand why, you know, that made money, but my cool Genesis, I would wish them just do both. When, uh, when Mike Rutherford was up here, and I'm like, you know, you could uh, do both. And he gets this wry smile on his face and just smiles at me like, just shut the hell up. <laughs> and by the way, other people have other talents in rock bands. Ronnie Wood is a fantastic painter. Bob Dylan does metal sculpture and does other things. But Dr. Brian May, who is the chancellor of uh, what Moore's College of Astrophysics, who got his doctorate on the book, A Survey of Radio Velocities in the Zodiacal Dust Cloud, that the London Royal Society of Astronomy said changed the game about what he wrote. Now, you're studying this while you're on the road playing Bohemian Rhapsody and keep yourself alive. That's pretty goddamn impressive. And and (laughs) while he was doing all that, he was feeling very bad about abandoning, supposedly abandoning his career in astrophysics, which is father really wanted him to pursue uh, uh, i was in art school and then the school burned down so i have nothing and then i hook up with me mate and we made some rock codes it's not that no. <laughs> Wait, here's i found a quote on his website i have thoroughly enjoyed my years playing guitar and recording music with queen but it's extremely gratifying to see the publication of my thesis may said i've been fascinated with astronomy for years and i was happy to finally complete my phd last year and record my studies of the zodiacal light in this book a lot different from your average rock and roller so there's these highbrow (laughs) bands like uh, genesis queen also pink floyd even yeah they met in architecture school right so you can imagine the the brainiacs in that band, and oh, maybe God. why they didn't get along so much. <laughs> All have different theories on. Oh, exactly, exactly. On uh, yeah, and then there's the uh, the pros like uh, Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page, of course, a uh, um, well-known well, session player, all studio guys, right? Um, he wanted to start a band with Jeff Beck, John Entwistle, and Keith Moon, 
um, and they were thinking about Steve Winwood as a vocalist. But I guess nobody wanted to be in a band with Jimmy Page, so he got yeah. he got stuck with John Paul Jones, Robert Plant, John Bonham. <laughs> it, it worked out okay. Yeah, and then more in the Beatles line of thought, there's the Who, the Stones, who both started playing together as teenagers. You know, it's funny when I, I think about how these bands emerge from their basics. You know, here, you know, they're they're street guys, right? John Lennon, Paul McCartney. There's there's nothing a whole lot going on outside of raw talent and ambition. But for the Stones, Keith's art school, Mick is London School of Economics. Even though he's a sexy blues singer, and was he was he more fit the mold of the Brian Mays of the world? Actually, mm. I always maintain if the Stones didn't take off, were a flash in the pan. Mick Jagger would have wound up being uh, an MP, a minister. And if the cards broke the way he would, he'd be prime minister. He'd be the PM. He'd be at uh, 10 Downing Street. I mean, because, you know, like they say, and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm just absolutely convinced that the Queen actually does invite Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney for tea and things to Buckingham Palace. And I, I know that's happened from time to time, not for an official visit, sort of as a photo op, but she just invites them. I'll bet you any amount of money she talks to them about what's going on economically in England and to get their opinions on how things are going and what's happening in Parliament. There isn't a chance. She met with Mick and Paul before Brexit. Mm-hmm. You think she really just wanted to have tea with them and ask how, how the music's going or wanted their thoughts? I mean, these are two Englishmen who built billion-dollar businesses out of what they did and really watch their, you know, their every nickel and every pence that goes by. What do you think? Yeah, I think Mick and um, someone like, dare I say, Gene Simmons <laughs> and Paul McCartney and maybe Don Henley. Yeah. Those guys who just know how to make a shitload of money. <laughs> It seems like that that's a transferable skill no matter what field you're in. Yeah, w- without a doubt. I've always said if, if there was no kiss, you know, Gene Simmons would be the guy we're advertising as the car dealer on Q1043. He would have been right. crazy Eddie. Yeah. He, he, you know, he he just saw a way. We always talk about now in the advertising world or in radio, whatever, in branding. You know, you have to... You have to blow up the brand. You have cross, cross-platform cross branding opportunity. He saw that from the day it started. The Kiss is not a band. It's a brand. From Kiss condoms to Kiss coffins, we got you coming and going. There isn't. He will not leave this earth until every product made by mankind has the Kiss logo on it, and he can sell it. Yeah. One thing that, um, going back to the origin stories discussion, the Stones and the Who have very uh, parallel... Uh, sort of beginnings so mick and keith right they met at a train station right apparently mick jagger was carrying a chuck barry album and the best of muddy waters keith loved chuck barry of course had only heard of muddy waters and keith was carrying a guitar at the time so they started talking and now there's a plaque at the spot on the platform where they met and then with the who Roger Daltrey, who had recently been expelled from high school, or <laughs> primary school, would it be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he spots John Entwistle because Roger is in a band. He needs a bass player, and John just happens to be carrying a bass walking down the street. It, hey, know, where are you going with that thing? Right. 
It's amazing when you, how we talk about how the Beatles came together, and then we got he. You know, when the when the when the uh, quarrymen were up here, and I said to Len, "Were you always kind of pissed off that, you know, Paul gets rid of John's band, he lets it happen, and then they become the Beatles?" And you know, it was completely honest. We know so many bitter people like, "Hey, screw me over," you know. And he said, "No, not really. We were doing it for fun. This is just was a lark. I had absolutely no desire to be a musician for the rest of my life." For the rest of the year, something to do for the summer. We some girls would come around. It was it was as they would say as they say in England. It was a laugh. He did it for a laugh. He goes. Those two were serious about it. He goes. Whether it happened that summer or at the end of the summer or next year, we weren't going to be a band. We were there to screw around. Those two wanted to be a band. I'm like got it. And you know what? All my, kudos to him and to Len and Colin and all those guys to realize. They weren't going to put in the work. They were not going to go to the red light district in the Reaper Bond yeah. and go to Hamburg and not sleep and not get paid and work eight hours a day for no money to just practice and be a band. They were going to work somewhere. You know, they we're not doing that. And knowing the drive of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, if they didn't get kicked out of the band, they would have quit. Right. Because they if wouldn't they weren't it. into it. Yeah, they wouldn't have done it. Um, the Beatles as an overnight sensation, and I said it before, I'll tell you again, for every musician out there, there is no band I've ever heard of that put in more time and hours to learning to play, write, and work together than the Beatles. And what what you saw suddenly emerge, like so many other great art, suddenly they're the greatest. Suddenly my ass. You didn't see all the hard work that went into that. Here they are, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan's show. A lot the millions of hours that went into work to get to that. Producer Andrew, in your band, the 100,000, about how many hours do you say you rehearse or play a week? Together? Yes. Probably in the neighborhood of six or seven hours together. Which is good in this day and age. Because yeah. I, I have friends in Nashville, they're trying to get going, they send tapes, they said, oh, how often together do you play? So, you know, we try to get together. Even if we don't play, we just discuss our songs i said no that's nothing <laughs> sitting around and talking about your songs is not rehearsing rehearsing is rehearsing and all of these bands have that same story all they did was play every second grabbed every gig they could it didn't matter where it was in the back of a fruit stand we just have to play yeah and it makes me really jealous especially of bands younger than us sort of you know, yeah, we're all in our late twenties, early thirties, and if we had started this band in our twenties, if we started in college, um, I think we would be a bit, a bit further along because you have less responsibilities in college and potentially, anyway, more more time. More time. Yeah, I mean, these guys, the bands we've all talked about today. You know, pretty much threw everything else away to be in the band. Like Brian May, as you said before, I re I love being in the band Queen, but I regret that I never got my PhD and finished this astrophysicist work. Um, and he meant that, but he put it aside. Uh, I just had this very conversation with my dear friend, the jazz drummer Danny Gottlieb, and Danny's teaching at uh, in Jacksonville University of North Florida. He's teaching uh, jazz drumming and the bands and stuff. And it's interesting, the, the other teachers in school say if, if the musicians get a gig, 
all the other teachers in school say, well, you can't, if you have a rehearsal or you have a band thing for school, you can't miss that because you've committed to it. You can't miss that to play a gig. You know, you, you have to focus on your schoolwork. And Danny is the one screaming, pounding the table, going, no, absolutely not. Absolutely 100% wrong. It's 180 degrees the other way. Always miss school to play a gig. And like, well, but you're a teacher now. Like, yes, and what I'm teaching you is you should play every gig you can get. But find a sub. You can't just blow off a rehearsal. You can't blow off a school performance. Part of learning to be a pro, if you want to be a pro, and this is, he's teaching to be a pro, not theory, is always have a backup. What's your network of backup people who play your instruments and your songs? So if you can't make something, you've got somebody to call on for your gig or for school. I'll teach them professionalism, but never have anybody miss a gig. And I said to Danny, you know, that's a difference because these guys were all teachers and never did it. And you've been playing professionally, you know, you lied about your age. And at 15, he's the drummer in the Catskills, you know, at an hotel with a crappy drum kit, but he was playing drums. When he went to the University of Miami and, you know, it, just, it was that class of, what was it, class of 75, 76, that everybody came out of. It was the Pat Metheny group, the Dixie Dregs, 24th Street Band. Here were the three best guitarists of his class, Pat Metheny, uh, uh, Steve Morse, and uh and uh who am i missing? and hiram bullock you know the bass players of mark egan and danny and clifford and uh steve jordan of the drummers rod morgenstern uh it's amazing but he said but all we did was do gigs so i didn't have a car so i used to con girls everybody else was trying to con girls to go into bed to get to bed i would con girls to drive me to the gigs i'll pay for gas and i'll buy you dinner if you can drive me to fort lauderdale and just hang out, it's like three hours, and I'll pay for gas and dinner and get me back. And he said, I, I didn't know this about Danny, he failed percussion his <laughs> senior year at the University of Miami. Like, you're world-class jazz drummer, you've played with everyone. He said, yeah, but I, I couldn't get back for the test. Like, he, some, Pat Metheny was teaching in Wisconsin and recommended him for this gig, and the guy loved him and brought him on a tour to Alaska. And do I get back from my percussion final or do I book six weeks and tour in Alaska? Yeah, what are you going to get more out of, <laughs> out of as a musician? Exactly. <laughs> he goes, well, I think I got to just, I got to play. If I'm good enough to play this tour, that's what I'll learn how to be a professional musician. And later on, like 20 years later, they they gave him a late excuse and gave him a C or something, which is just hilarious. And Billy Joel last weekend uh, spoke at the graduation for Hicksville High, and Billy got an F in English because he didn't take his final. And w he spoke about it. He said, so I failed English um, because I played in a piano bar all night long. I had a gig on weekends at 18 playing a piano bar, you know, the Piano Man song. And they told me, you can't stop playing till the last person leaves. You're the last guy who leaves. And there was some drunk who was there till like <laughs> four in the morning and they didn't stop serving him, so I had to keep playing. <laughs> and he goes, the English final was like 8.30. By the time I got home and settled up, he goes, there was no way I was getting to class. And so, and Mark Rivera on Breakfast with the Beatles. Was that before alarm clocks? Yeah. Well, I think there were <laughs> alarm clocks, but I don't think he was in the mood to set it. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I've been friends with Mark Rivera for many years. You guys know I'm very lucky to have some talented friends. 
And I have never heard this story until Mark told it Sunday morning on Breakfast the Beatles Live that he failed out of the high school of performing arts. He failed at Fame High School. He got an F on Spanish. And I said, Mark Rivera from Brooklyn failed Spanish. How did you do that? He said, very easily. I didn't go to class because he and John Cobert, who plays keyboards with us at, you know, 18, 17, 18, were hanging around the Hit Factory on the west side of Manhattan, and they were so good. May Pang, who was also our guest, brought them together to play with John Lennon to rehearse because John wanted to start another band. He was sick of seeing Paul with wings. I want to, maybe I'll have a band. And everybody heard there were some kids playing with John Lennon. Hey, you guys want to play with us? So they became the little house band. They were the little teenage wrecking crew at the Hit Factory. So they'd hang around there all day, all night. When every, you know, it was like you were in, in sitting in the waiting pool. Uh, hey, I need a keyboard player. Up, I'm up. Hey, can you guys do a rhythm section? Yep. Hey, I need a sax guy, a guitar guy. Yep. So they'd sit there all day, all night. He said, I didn't have time to go to class. I was working all night. <laughs> we be we were being paid hourly, like we were session musicians. Wow. And he said, you know, it was shit money, but. I'm 18, I'm in the hit factory, and all these famous people are walking through the doors. I'm not going to, I'm not saying to Ian Hunter, sorry, I've got to go home uh, to sleep for my Spanish final. And so, the, but the, we laugh about it, but the takeaway is it's all these guys wanted was to be working musicians and nothing, not schoolwork, a girl, nothing was going to stand in their way. Uh, an example of Mark Rivera's talent, and it's something that you don't notice. Let me point it out to you now. In a band, you know, Ringo might be singing Photograph on stage, and Mark would be playing saxophone. On Breakfast with the Beatles, Mark is singing lead and playing saxophone. And if you stop and think about what he's got to do as a musician, it's almost like a ventriloquist's act where he's talking in two different voices because there is literally not one bar of music or one note of music between the two. He's keeping a set. You know, you could play piano and sing. You can play a stringed instrument and sing. But, you know, a, a, a wind instrument and singing, you can do one of the two. And he's keeping that mouthpiece right next to his mouth and simply alternating back and forth from sax to singing perfectly. Here, listen. Isn't that just insane? It's like a magic trick. Yeah, if I knew anything about how to play the saxophone, <laughs> I would be more impressed, most likely. <laughs> I'm I'm impressed just to have you being able to play one thing perfectly, but doing two almost simultaneously. When he does his traffic band, they have a band called Glad, the only band I've ever seen as a traffic tribute band. And he's singing and he's switching between flute and sax and playing percussion to fill in all the other parts. And when I introduced him for the encore. I said, so here's Mark Rivera, who is tonight is playing the part of Steve Winwood and Chris Wood, the sax flute guy, and Rebop as well at the same time. Just the guys on that level are just absolutely unbelievable. Are they bringing that back? 
Yeah, it, are as, they going to do that again? Yeah, it's an amazing show when they do traffic. The problem is everybody's working. Right. Mark's working. Jeff Kizzee's working with Southside Johnny. Rich Pagano's working. They're doing an early Elton show. Jeff and, and Mark do Elton as trio and play that out. As he said, we love doing it. Finding a window to rehearse and to play and to play is the hardest thing in the world. But that's why they're that good because people that good are always working. Yeah, so I have trouble finding time to rehearse with my band, and Rivera has trouble for sort of the same reason, but his day job is a session musician, live uh, music director for the stars. Right. As I, he, There was some show, I forgot, where he ran across Nils Lofgren, who he knew because he was in the Ringo All-Star Band for a couple of years. And Nils said, what are you doing? He said, well, crazy life. I am the music director and sax player for Ringo whenever I can, and I also play with Billy every month or whenever he goes out. So I've got this great, amazing two jobs, but I kind of have to try to do them simultaneously. And and I'm always with Billy because that's not often so, and Ringo's kind enough to let me go whenever I need to be with Billy. And Neil said to him, that, my friend, is the definition of a musician champagne problem. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. So thank you, as always, for hanging with us on the Beatles Revolution. They changed the world. July 6th, John and Paul. And by the way, the uh, the church, St. Peter's Church, all next week, if you happen to be going to Liverpool, are doing guided tours of the area where they first met, and they haven't mapped out where the wagon was, where the quarrymen played, where the pies were, where the where the May Queen was. Where where they met, and they're doing tours of the churchyard. And you know what? If I could, I'd go there this weekend and just sit there and try to feel the energy of the grass and imagine what that was in 1957, where nobody had any idea. But it, you know, in, in a movie, the world shakes on its axis, or a, you know, the the sun, the clouds part, and the sun shines through, and a crow flies. You know, in that moment, because it it changed the world when these two kids became friends. At least something part of that was in slow motion, for sure. Without a doubt, yeah. Him, John handing Paul the guitar to tune, that has to be in slow motion to like the Chariots of Fire music. <laughs> so do it. Guys, thanks for hanging out with us always. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.